something I always try to do is anticipate where things are going. What do I think is going to happen? And then look for opportunities for our team and myself and our leaders to, to embrace it and go ahead of that and almost plan ahead. Welcome to the Super Managers Podcast, where we interview leaders from all walks of life to tease out the habits, thought patterns, learnings, and experiences that help them be extraordinary at the fine craft of management. Our goal is to bring you the lessons and the insights so that you don't have to learn through your own mistakes, but so that you can shortcut your way to being a great leader. This podcast is brought to you by Fellow, a software platform that helps managers and their teams work better together. Check it out at www.fellow.app. Hey, fellow managers and leaders, I'm Aiden, and I'm the CEO of Fellow.app. I am really excited about this next guest. His name is Lenny Richitsky. If you are into product management or growth, you've heard about him. He's really insightful. He has his own newsletter called Lenny's Newsletter, which I also highly recommend you subscribe to if those two areas are of interest to you. But he started out, he started this great company, Airbnb acquired it. And he was part of Airbnb at a very important and fast-growing period of the company and really led a lot of their growth initiatives. But the first time I actually found out about Lenny was after reading this article that he wrote about performance management and performance reviews on First Round Review. And reading this article, you might think that, oh, well, performance reviews, you know, what, is, what else is there to say about them? They're, you know, very obvious and so on and so forth. But this was a great article. He created this framework, broke it down step by step. I found it so insightful that I actually shared it with my team. And ever since I've been, you know, following and exchanging thoughts and ideas with Lenny on Twitter and I just had to have him on the show so that everybody else could also learn from him. Lenny is good at a lot of things, but he's particularly good at taking any particular concept, breaking it down into a framework, and making it really easy for people to understand the essence of that topic, but also to follow it step by step. This interview is full of insights. I'm very excited to share it with you. And so without any further ado... Here's Lenny Richitsky on episode 25 of the Super Managers podcast. Lenny, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I suspect that this is going to be a super fun conversation. Uh, we've conversed on Twitter before. We have some mutual friends. And I know you have a lot to say about management and leadership stuff. So what I wanted to do is actually maybe rewind a, a little bit and uh, figure out, you know, the first time that you actually started managing or leading a team, when did you actually start really liking it? Was it from day one or when did that moment actually come? I like those two separate questions being combined almost. Uh, so it's like, yeah, so when did I start being a manager and then when did I like it? Uh, so I started my first management role was at a company called Webmetrics, which is a startup I joined in San Diego right out of college. I was essentially their first uh, or second engineering hire and the other engineer left. And so I kind of became the de facto engineer of the company. It was a company in San Diego, actually. And uh, I ended up leading the team. We built out the team. I ended up managing about uh, six to eight people. And honestly, I did not like it at all. And I ended up giving it up and moving into an R&D role, 
at the company because I was just like, I don't enjoy this. I just want to like, I was an engineer at that point. I just want to code. I just want to do real, do real work, not deal with drama all day. And so I gave it up and then went to R and D. And then, and then after that, I started a company, which innately requires leading and managing. And so I came back to it with the company that we got acquired by Airbnb and I became an ICPM. And then I was an IC for five years and then I got back into management. <laughs> that was my journey. And at which point did you start liking it? I, I'll say I enjoyed leading PMs a lot more than engineers, turns out. Uh, and so so I think, so I enjoyed it when I ran the company. That was awesome. That was a great time because I think you have a lot of, lot of more decision-making abilities. Uh, it's your thing. And so it's a lot more fun. So I'd say the first time was when starting my company. Cool. That's awesome. And uh, I'm just going to dig into that a little bit just because you mentioned it. Why is managing engineers and managing PMs different? Or like, what's one key difference? I think I think one maybe thing that I'll, I'll, I've, I've found is that as a manager and as like, you know, founder, you have to think about the business and it's always coming from like, what's the best thing to do for the business and how do we drive impact? How do we drive growth? And in general, PMs are a lot more aligned with that perspective than engineers. But, you know, I've also worked with, incredible engineers and have loved working with and managing engineers too but i think that's the one thing that you see is there's a slight difference there yeah and and that's probably just uh you know your background as being a founder i mean a founder is kind of like a pm for the whole company so when you were at airbnb obviously you know you, you said you started as an icpm and uh and continued to grow and then eventually you were leading an 80 person team just curious like so what changed in your leadership style as you were going from, um, you know, like managing a small team to managing uh, quite a large team and, and uh, with big responsibility? So things that I think I took away and shifted and evolved in, uh, one is just kind of realizing that a big part of the role is not to just like make sure everything is done perfectly, but instead to hire amazing people and essentially unblock them and let them do what they're good at as much as possible. So that means things like kind of on a high level, thinking ahead and making sure that they have all the resources and decisions made and budget and questions answered so they can work and think and execute. And then more tactically, just like, is there a decision they're waiting on? Is there a meeting they need to have? Is there like some code that needs to be reviewed? So a lot of the work I've found over time is just like, unblocking, hiring amazing people and unblocking them. The other thing I'd say is, I guess I touched on, is just like thinking ahead a lot more. I'd say as I see, you have to think like a week ahead or two weeks ahead, just like, what am I working on right now? And as a manager, you have to start, and I, almost like the more senior you get, the more longer term you have to think. So if you like, you know, if you're an IC, it's like maybe a couple of weeks. If you're a manager of a small team, maybe it's like a couple months. And then if you're a leader of a larger team, or a manager of managers, you have to think, you know, six months, a year ahead, because you have to get the right people in place. You have to get the right budget aligned. You have to get other tracks of work uh, moving at the same time and kind of coming out at once. Yeah, makes sense. So I guess, you know, as part of that, it's, it's not just um, hiring great people and then uh, unblocking them, which is, which is a very, very important part. You're also doing the planning and figuring out like what the long-term outcome and vision is, but uh, maybe you're not telling them exactly how to do it. Yeah, planning is a big part of it because it's, in a sense, unblocking 
their future and making sure that they're going to be successful with like, is the project that they're working on going to ship because, oh shit, I didn't plan this other project is going to block it and it's going to be delayed six months. And so when, when you first started, were you good at planning or uh, is that something that you uh, learned or were there processes at say Airbnb that you just took on or did you have to invent your own? How did that all play out? I was very bad at it. Looking back, I had no idea what I was doing. (laughs) I was not a good PM when I started. And I think I got better partly by just doing it. And then I'd say more so by having amazing mentors around me that were really good at it. So I had this one manager, Vlad, who's still at Airbnb. And he taught me a ton about um, about product management and just leadership. Like, uh, for example, how to plan and how to put together really crisp and clear strategies uh, that I've kind of evolved and, and relied on over the years. And why, why is planning so hard? And why, I, f- I feel like it's a thing that most people don't do well because, uh, you know, y- you, you constantly hear, oh, we, we, we missed the plan, we mid- missed the deadline, we didn't account for this. Like, how much of it do you think is um, planning well? And how much of it do you think it's, uh, you know, executing the plan? Like, what, what makes planning so hard? I think, I think the root of it is just humans are not great at long-term planning. As uh, we can tell by just looking at the world and how much is not the way we want it to be. And then, so at a company planning together, many people planning with all these micro decisions they have to make, uh, all these trade-offs that have to be made that impact people's careers. I think it's just innately a very challenging thing. And also it's done so rarely that it's hard to really get good at it. It's like once a quarter, once a year. And then even if you do get good at it, there's new people coming in, new leaders with new ideas. And so you're always trying to, you're always changing it and, and, and trying to optimize and, and improve. And so there's not like a big feedback loop. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And so, uh, so you uh, developed a uh, framework, and I don't know if you had this before, or this was at, at Airbnb, or, or this is something that you kind of coined after the fact. Um, but you call it the W framework and you talk about context plans, integration and buy-in. Yeah. So how did you, I mean, is is that something that, that you guys, uh, invented at Airbnb? So a friend and I who, uh, who did strategy and finance and uh, things at uh, Eventbrite and I just kind of were chatting about planning, uh, maybe, I don't know, a year ago at this point. And we kind of just found that we, we saw that a certain type of planning worked really well. And then we just came up with a name for it called the W framework because it's shaped like a W. And where it comes from is, I guess, just like why we thought this was important to share is we found that the biggest issue with planning usually is is essentially just like a lack of understanding of who's responsible for what and when. And it becomes this kind of like chaotic experience where like, oh, I didn't realize this person had a say or I didn't realize that was the final decision maker. What this tries to do is try to, tries to make very clear who's in charge of the plan, who's responsible for what, what's the timeline, who makes the final call. And so the framework is essentially shaped like a W, that's why we called it that. And where it comes from is there's essentially two big groups in planning. There's the leadership group, whether it's like the founders of a startup or the executive team. So that's like, imagine that in your mind's eye up top. And then there's the team that's actually doing the work. So those are the two rough groups in planning. And the W is formed by just kind of going back and forth between the two groups. And so the four steps, you, you covered them, but just to briefly explain what they are. Step one is, is the leadership group giving context to the teams of here's what we believe needs to happen on a high level strategically for us to win. And I found that that 
is really important and often missed. And often it's kind of like optimized in reverse where people think the team should just figure it out on their own. And we found that it's really important for there to be a tops down guidance of like, here's what we know and here's what we believe is important. See what you think and then help us figure out how to achieve this. So that's the first W, kind of the first leg. And then it goes back up and the team delivers a plan. Here's what we think we can do. And here's what we need to do it. And then the next step is where the leadership group integrates it. So that comes back down to the teams. They integrate all the plans into one big plan. And then there's a final, just kind of the final part of the W where the teams get feedback, tweak, you know, like if they're told, hey, you're not getting these resources, they adjust their plan, adjust their impact. So that's what that W is all about. Yeah, I love it. I mean, and, and there was like hints of it in what you were talking about before, which is planning ahead and then making sure that the teams are are actually involved in the execution strategy. I, I love the fact that it's iterative because you also, you know, or just earlier mentioned that, you know, planning is hard because there isn't as many feedback loops. And it's kind of like you've built in this feedback loop. I mean, it's a mini feedback loop and you probably have to do a retrospective or something at, at the end of it. Uh, but I love that it, it bounces back and forth between the teams a few times um, where it's not like, oh, you know, the leadership, they just, you know, they just come up with these things and, you know, nobody talks to us. And, and the other one is, uh, you know, obviously, like if the teams are just doing their own thing, it may actually like they may be building a road and really quickly building a road, but maybe they're building a ro- road in zigzags or the wrong direction. So I do really like that. The um, question I had was, you know, I, I mean, nowadays, uh, and, and maybe it's just in my filter bubble, but OKRs are just everywhere. Everybody talks about OKRs. Um, how does this fit in with with OKRs? I love OKRs, and we tried to keep this more abstract, but OKRs fit exactly right into this plan. And the way they fit in is that's that's essentially the plan you deliver. So the leadership group can deliver, here's like, Here's our objective and here's how we think about key results. And then the plan at, at a company level, and then each team delivers their plan as an OKR. Here's what we, here's our objective for each of our teams. Here's how we're gonna measure success. So it's it's plug and play. And there's other ways to do this. I love OKR. So that's generally how I approach it too. Lenny, I do have a quote for you. Um... And I'm very, very curious about it. So I'm just going to re- read it to you and then would love for you to uh, elaborate. You say, uh, in parallel, uh, consider the idea of reorganizing your teams to align with your strategy. This may sound painful now, but in our experience, having your strategy inform your structure versus the other way around is the only way to be successful long term. Yeah. So what that's speaking to is a lot of times companies stick to a a set of teams and organizational structure just because that's what they have already. And they're worried about moving people around or ending a team because it's gonna hurt people's feelings or it's gonna be hard. But you have to do that kind of stuff. If you find, for example, that like, okay, we had a team that was optimizing conversion for onboarding. And then this quarter or this year, onboarding is not one of the objectives or key results. It's not like a big deal. And it's not something we want to work on. You don't want to just keep that team around as it is just because you have that team. That's the time you decide, okay, we're going to pivot this team to some other objective, or we're going to split them up and put them on other teams. I think too often people are focusing on being nice and not hurting people's feelings versus what do we actually need to do as a company to be successful? And let's figure out what needs to happen. And the way actually Vlad actually taught me this lesson is you want to start with, okay, let's take out the emotions and the 
and kind of, yeah, how people will react first. And let's, what's the best thing we could do if we were to start again? And how would we approach that? And then you figure that out. And then you figure out how do we get bridge that gap to help people understand why these changes need to happen or make most of the changes, but you know, maybe not the most painful changes. So I, I guess just asking a little bit more about that, I think, uh, who are the people who would tend to, like, do you think it's the leaders of the teams that would be the most like, like, I mean, would they have hurt feelings more than other folks? And like, maybe in the context of the new teams being established, it doesn't make sense for them to lead this newly formed team. I think it's everybody. I think it's like, you know, an engineer on a team that's excited about a project and then all of a sudden it's not a priority and then they can't work on it. Uh, I think it's like the bonding of the team. Sometimes you just have to break a team up and split them up across other teams. And so people don't like moving, especially if you're you're an IC and you have a manager and you have to change teams to a new manager. But that's the kind of stuff that needs to happen sometimes. But also the leaders of the team, you know, I think as the company grows, there's more of a desire to build an empire and take ownership and have a larger domain. And sometimes teams have to be moved to a different part of the org or dissolved. And so those leaders get upset. And so again, you just have to think about what's the, what's the right thing to do for the good of the business uh, and then work backwards from that. Hey there, before moving to the next part of the interview, quick interjection to tell you about one of the internet's best kept secrets the Manager TLDR newsletter. So every two weeks, we read the best content out there, the greatest articles, the advice, the case studies, whatever the latest and greatest is, we summarize it and we send it to your inbox. We know you don't have the time to read everything, but because we're doing the work, we'll summarize it and send it to your inbox once every two weeks. And the best news, it's completely free. So go on over to fellow.app slash newsletter and sign up today. And with that said, let's go back to the interview. Just from a practicality standpoint, like how often does this happen? Yeah, at Airbnb, one of my coworkers had this joke that every, if she hadn't, hasn't moved teams in six months, something's coming, something's about to change. And so, so I think it's, a, it's not a bad sign if reorgs happen often, like even every six months when you're small, because you don't want to just stick to the way things are. You always want to be thinking, how do we go faster? How do we work smarter? So at Airbnb is honestly every six months for a long time, and then it ends up being every year, and then it ends up being a little longer. So, but I think at a smaller company, it's much less of a reorg. It's more of a reprioritization of projects. And that's, that should happen, you know, maybe every quarter, every month, maybe. Yeah. And there's probably some, you know, uh, some, some consequences of that, that are very positive too. I mean, probably keeps people fresh, uh, keeps them working on new and, and more challenging problems. Uh, you know, maybe they did six months of work on this thing and, and now they're tired of it. Maybe it's an opportunity to choose what the next thing is. I mean, one of the things that good good leaders and managers probably do is they're probably aware of projects that might be coming in the future. And, and if you really understand the team, then then maybe, maybe you can have a role in making sure that they end up on something that they're super interested in. Yeah, that's such a good point. Not everyone is, would be sad if their team dissolved or if their priority, if their project wasn't a priority. So I think that's absolutely true. Don't assume everyone's unhappy with change. And also change is a really good opportunity to level up in your career, to take on new opportunities that arise or new teams that are formed. Something I always try to do is anticipate where things are going. What do I think is gonna happen with, with orgs and priorities? And then 
look for opportunities for our team and myself and our leaders to to embrace it and go ahead of that and almost plan ahead just kind of like hey we have a plan for this new thing that we kind of thought was coming what do you guys think and then gives you this new opportunity to take take more responsibility i wanted to talk to you i mean again just related to to planning um perhaps a controversial topic maybe uh just goal setting and deciding you know what is aggressive uh, what's not aggressive and, and how, sh- how you should play that. And I wanted to put a twist on this question because um, I think, you know, as, as someone who has led a startup, uh, maybe this is slightly different there versus at a larger company that maybe some of the goals trickle down from, from the top. What, what are your views on, on goal setting and how do you know if uh, what you're doing is too aggressive or it's not too aggressive? What I've seen at Airbnb that was really powerful for me is every year we had this, we had kind of our financial team figure out here's, here's where we we're going to be if we do nothing, basically a forecast based on all historical data. And then, and then they gave us, a, they kind of came up with, here's our proposal for the goal for the next year. And then Brian, our CEO, always just like, I don't know, doubled it or increased it substantially. And that's what ended up being the goal. It turns out we almost always hit that crazy goal for years and years and years. And I would say that's a big reason Airbnb got to where it is because of the ambition that the founders had and this desire to always go bigger and, and bolder. So, so to me, that showed the power of big ambitious goals and not just settling for something that feels safe, but it doesn't always work. That's like you know one example. And I'm sure there's many companies that also have ambitious goals and don't hit those goals. But it does show that there's a lot of value there. The way I think about goals, just kind of broadly, is I kind of think of them as a, it's like a video game. You're designing almost a video game because I think of goals as there's kind of three benefits to a goal. Uh, One is just like measuring, are you on track to achieve the strategy that you have? Two is focusing a team on one focus and one outcome instead of all these different goals that they have in their mind. And then three is motivating them to achieve something they may not have achieved. And so that's where the ambition, the ambitious goal comes in is how do you push the team to do more than they would have normally? And so the metaphor I like to use is like a video game. Video games are designed to be just challenging enough where you're like, oh, this is fun. I'm, I'm doing well and I'm overcoming all these challenges, but it's not so hard that you're just like, forget this. I'm going to turn this off and move on. So I think about what's that middle ground where it's challenging and but not impossible. The way Brian at Airbnb described it is you want it to be improbable but not impossible. I like that. Improbable, but not impossible. And I think that's where the OKR 70% piece is really valuable. You know, here's like, we think we can get to 100, but let's, and so I guess 70, we think we can get to 70. Let's extend that just to see if we can, but we're still good and happy if we hit 70. But, you know, 100 would be great too. And it actually somehow magically pushes people to think bigger. And from from the accountability standpoint, how do you make it so that people don't think that, okay, well, 70 is good enough and then just aim for, for good enough? And how do you hold people accountable if something is openly expressed as improbable? So you, one is you should get buy-in from the team that like, okay, we're going to do this. And there's a lot of ways you can approach that. But I think it's really important that the team actually sees that like takes this seriously this isn't just like a crazy goal that no one's going to care about like this is actually your goal and tell me what you need to feel comfortable to achieve anything like this and what needs to be true 
So kind of, so getting buy-in is really important because otherwise it doesn't even matter. If it's a pie-in-the-sky thing that you know the team wasn't even in, involved in choosing, then yeah. And you, I guess you even for an improbable goal, you have to have a rationale as why it could be possible. But you know, obviously things need to change. Yeah, so that's a good point. You want to not just like the goal can't live in a vacuum. It needs to be clear to people why this matters. And usually, why it matters is here's what we need to do as a business to be successful this year, next year, next year. So the way Airbnb approached it is there was kind of this, this was years ago at this point, but it was, there was the 2020 plan or maybe it was the 2025 plan. Here's what we need to be in 2025. And in order to get there, here's what we need this year, next year, next year, next year. And then it became clear. All right, I get it. So we're all incentivized to achieve this because it matters to the business and, and like, you know, the options I have in this company are going to be worth a lot if this goes really well, and we're going to achieve this mission that we've all signed up for. So it's really important to tie it to something that actually matters to people. And then there's kind of a side thing that I try to do as much as possible is connect what the person is working on to what their personal goals are. Sometimes it's the, the company does really well, but sometimes it's, I just want to learn how to start a company in the future. And so help the person see, here's how the work you're doing is going to help you learn how to start a company, or it's, I want to be promoted. And then you show them, here's how you're going to move up your career ladder if you work on these things that are really important to us. Uh, and that's actually a perfect segue for another thing that I want to talk to you about. So uh, you're kind of here touching on this concept of like personal goals, what you want to do, areas that you want to develop in. You know, another thing that you have written about is just performance management in general. Traditionally, a boring topic for many, a painful topic for a large portion of the world, I feel. And something that I guess a lot of companies are formally ditching, but maybe they're they're continuing to do it and they think that they're ditching it. A lot of people have come out and uh, said the performance review is dead. You know, constant feedback is the way to go. Uh, but yet they still have like an evaluation at the end of the year. I mean, what do you think? Like is performance, uh, are performance reviews dead? What, why do people say that? No, I definitely don't think they're dead. And I think that's a big mistake. I think people say it because it takes a lot of work. I think that's one of the pieces it's because it's, and it should take a lot of work. So I think it's one, like, how do we reduce this workload? I think two, there's the, the theory of ongoing feedback, filling that gap. But I find that it's really important to just take a, take some time, whether it's every six months or every year to just zoom out. And as a manager, look at the person's career and where it's going and what went well over the past six months, what didn't go well. And I don't know how you do that without kind of this every six month or every year performance review plan, because a lot of times the work isn't like a, you know, it's like, like a thing that happened in a week or in a month. It's, it's a broad perspective on, okay, here's the past six months. Here's all the things that succeed you succeeded with. Here's all the projects that went well, didn't go well. Let's collect feedback from your peers. And it becomes this holistic picture that I don't know how you do, not as these, as these kind of more official performance reviews. And, and I find as a manager, it's one of the most important things to do for your reports. And so I take it super seriously and I recommend other folks do too. Yeah. So um, it's interesting. You mentioned that it does take a lot of time. How much time would you say that people should spend per team member? I'd say, so I think I spend like five hours at least per team member per cycle. I think you want to spend probably at least three hours like the way I think about it is this might be the most important meeting you have with your report every year. 
because it's so profoundly impacts their career, which impacts their life because they need to understand what is going well. How do I get promoted? How do I get a raise? How do I be more successful in my job? And that's what this experience is all about. And so if you're not putting in meaningful time, I don't know how your reports actually understand what they should be doing and and leveling up. How do you basically uh, bridge the gap between feedback that you're giving on an ongoing basis versus the zoom out process? And I 100% agree. Like if you don't have a point in time where you specifically zoom out, you're probably like just optimizing for uh, local uh, maxima versus like where someone could actually be. But how do you, um, I guess, like form that trend? Are you taking notes along the way? If you have a team of 10 people, you know, how do you keep track of all this stuff? Yeah, yeah. So so I didn't mean to in, uh, insinuate that you don't also give ongoing feedback. The answer is you do both because people also need feedback in the moment as soon as possible. Hey, this meeting didn't go great. Here's things you could have done better. That stuff's really important. One-on-ones every week is really important. So it's not either or, it's both are really powerful. What I do is I keep, like I just had a Google doc of all my reports and then I just kept bullet points of things that they did great or didn't do great. And I just kind of dumped them in there through the year. And, and then when I came back to it, when I was doing the performance reviews, and then I also included like compliments they got from other people that emailed me like, hey, this person's doing really amazing. You should just know. So I, save those emails so it's just like you just keep track just like don't overthink it just like dump it somewhere for now and then it becomes really useful when you're trying to put together the whole story all these little examples and 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 actual uh data points that you can point to yeah i like that i think uh, obviously just leaving it to last minute and trying to remember what happened i mean then then there's the recency bias and all the bad things that come with that exactly exactly and then like the report is like oh you didn't remember all these things i did that sucks yeah yeah, no, totally. You know, you do this other thing, which, which I think is uh, is clever, and I find that mo- a lot of people don't do. So you talk about identifying people's superpowers along the way. And what's interesting is you, you basically say, it's great that you have a superpower, like, what can we do collectively to get you to exhibit this more often? My question is, I know that this, this may, I mean, when you when you pose it as like, what is your superpower, it makes it almost sound that it's like an obvious thing and that like you could never get it wrong. I don't know why, but when when I think about this, I'm like, what if what if you get their superpower wrong? Like, how do you figure out what someone's superpower is? Yeah, I don't know if anyone would ever feel like I have a I don't agree with the superpower. I, and I haven't found that. I think everyone's like, great, thanks. I, I love to hear that. And you may have many superpowers. So even if you don't, you know, categorize them all, I think it's fine. So I wouldn't, I think it's another example of don't overthink it. Just like think of what's like, what's the thing that stands out to me about this person that they're super good at, and then just try to describe it. So a few that uh, I've seen are communication skills or galvanizing a team around an objective or vision, storytelling, or just like organization. So it's pretty straightforward stuff. And, you know, you could almost make a list of what are all the skills of, of the function and then which one are they the most amazing at? And the reason I, I do this and I actually also learned this from Vlad, the manager I mentioned, is it's really, there's a lot of research that just shows that not, that people aren't gonna get amazing at all of their everything. There's like things you're naturally gonna be much better at. And then there's the things you're not amazing at. You're never gonna be amazing at them, most likely. And you're gonna be a lot more successful just kind of continuing to put more effort into the thing you're amazing at because that's how you stand out and there's a lot more upside there. So that's why I focus on that. 
you know, you also say that this isn't necessarily like the whole performance review process. It's not an end in itself, but it's actually a beginning. I don't know if you would agree. Is that the biggest mistake in that people make in in these performance reviews? Yeah, I think maybe the first is not doing them because uh, we talked about, I don't know how else people understand what they should be focused on. And then two is, yeah, there's like, okay, I put all this work into this performance review. I came up with all of these clear things that the, this report should be working on. You've aligned on it. And then most people, cool, see you in six months. And then you don't come back to those things until six months later. And then you talk and you're like, hey, what, we didn't, why didn't you work on these things? Nothing really happened. And so what I found is that it's really important to use that performance review as a jumping off point to what I do is a monthly check-in with the person where we, what we first do is we come up with, here's kind of the action plan for the next six months. So we do performance reviews every six months. Here's just like five things you're going to work on. And here's, and here's how they're going every month. And you basically just come together around the spreadsheet. I just put in a spreadsheet. Here's five things we're going to work on for the next six months. You look at the spreadsheet together talk about how things are going, what's going well, not well. If things are going great, maybe add new things to the list. If, if not, keep talking about them. So you basically transition that performance review into this, uh, what I call an action plan of things you're going to actually do. And it's not like this is like an intense meeting every month. It's just, oh yeah, this is the things we all know we want you want to work on to move up in your career. Let's just make sure they're going well. Let's be on the same page about that. Another thing that is in this process and, and, and you kind of hinted at it, which is that you're not doing this in a bubble either. Uh, so the action plan isn't like, hey, here's your homework for the next six months, go do it. There's buy-in at that level, which goes back to what we did in the W framework for, for planning. Yeah, the buy-in is super important. So the way I approach it is at the end of the performance review, I ask the, my report to put together their action plan based on everything they heard. And, and so what they do is they take the performance review document and create a spreadsheet out of it and I give them a template. And then so it becomes their, their thing, the thing that they're trying to improve for themselves. And then, you know, I give them feedback and we tweak them things sometimes, but it's less about me and it's more, here's what I want to get better at because this is what, and I trust that you understand what I need to get better at to move up in my career. So let's work on these things. Yeah. And it, take, it doesn't take that much time. You just, you don't have to even prepare for those meetings as a manager. Really, you just ask your report to tell me how you're doing and all these things ahead of the meeting, just give a status. Yeah, that makes sense. And I mean, that's a, that's another thing that I think is definitely recommended, which is obviously to have career type conversations. And like, this is a natural way to that kind of a conversation. You can obviously talk about more, but at least it's it's, it's a point in time and it's it's planned and, and you have something very tangible to talk about every time. Yeah, that's a really good point. Like career conversations are one of the most important uh, ways that I'm employees become satisfied with work and fulfilled in what they're doing is they understand there's a future and there's a path to where they're going. And this is exactly how you do it. And so, so the meetings I have with all my reports are weekly one-on-ones and then this monthly coaching session and then every six month performance review. That's it. Yeah. I love, I, I love the playbook format of that. I did want to kind of end, you know, en- end with a just question around h- how you basically approached learning what you have. You know, I'm impressed with, with the way that you kind of distill these ideas and practices into frameworks that then you teach t- to others. What is your approach when, when you have a problem that, or, or something that you feel that you're not good at, how do you get better at it? Yeah, my secret is with the writing I'm doing is I use it as an excuse to learn about stuff. And and the way I learn is to create something 
structured and a framework around it that I can use for other things I'm working on. So maybe for example, I worked on this research project around marketplace growth and it ended up being, inter- I ended up interviewing about 24 people at 17 different companies about how their companies start in marketplaces. And it's, it came from, I just want to learn. I don't know the answer. People keep asking me how Airbnb grew and I'm feeling, and I never felt like I had the great, the, the right answer or enough of an answer. So I'm like, I'm just going to talk to everyone that's done this and figure out what I can learn from it. So I start wide and just collect all the information as I'm doing it. I'm always looking for kind of buckets and a framework of how it kind of fits together. Cause there's rarely going to be an infinite number of answers and approaches and strategies. And so eventually they just start to kind of match up. They're like, okay, this company focused on supply first and this company focused on a market first. And so as I'm collecting interviews, I start to just in a Google doc, just throw them together into little buckets and, and categories. And then as I keep talking to people and thinking and looking at it, it starts to fit together into something that feels like a story or, or a playbook or an approach that feels right. And a lot of this is connected to just like a strategy as a, as a product manager that you put together. You want something that feels very crisp and tight and, you know, three things of anything and two by twos and, and things like that. So I always look for opportunities just to simplify and make it feel like something people can use. Yeah, I love it. Lenny, you have this newsletter. Maybe you could just uh, tell us a bit about it and, and how people can find you online to learn more. Yeah, it's uh, Lenny's newsletter.com. Very creative name that I'm it. stuck with now. <laughs> uh, and so it's the way I, I, I approach it is it's an advice column for product people, growth people, people managers, and just anyone that's stressing out at the office. And it's uh, every week I send out an answer to someone's question. People email me questions about things they're dealing with at work. And then I answer it every week. Uh, I've been doing it for about a year now. And so there's a paid version and a free version. If you're on the free version, you get an issue once a month. If you're on the paid version, you get one once a week and then your questions are prioritized. And we'll see where this whole adventure goes with this newsletter. And then I also tweet a lot at Lenny-san on Twitter. Very cool. So we'll include links, obviously, to the newsletter, the work that you've written on uh, performance management and planning. Uh, Lenny, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for, uh, for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. And that's it for today. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Supermanagers podcast. You can find the show notes and transcript at www.fellow.app/supermanagers. If you like the content, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so you can get notified when we post the next episode. And please tell your friends and fellow managers about it. It'd be awesome if you could help us spread the word about the show. See you next time.